Um, good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Great to see all of you. Some of you I've not been around in seven or eight months, and uh, welcome. Really happy to have you here. My name is John Mark. If you are new or watching online, welcome to all of you as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your welcome to us, extended through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the open invite of the Holy Spirit. Come again, Holy Spirit. We welcome you as you welcome us. Our aim for the next season is to continue to remain in you, as you said in John 15, to make our home in you as you make our, your home in us. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us be at home together. We honor you. Amen. William Faulkner, who is widely considered one of the greatest American novelists of all time, as you know, once said, it's hard believing, but disaster seems to be good for people. He said that in 1955 to a crowd in Tokyo, Japan, at a literary event, when he was asked to explain the unprecedented wave of creative output in Japanese literature and poetry after the disaster of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. To apply that quote to our kind of cultural moment and the vision series we're in, we've been dreaming up ways that the disaster of COVID-19 and all that comes with it, kind of plus, could be good for us as a community of followers of Jesus, could deepen us and develop us in our spiritual formation. But there is a major difference between disasters in previous generations, whether that was World War II or the Great Depression or the Spanish flu, and our generation. In the past, as a general rule, it's an oversimplification, but the impulse of our nation was to turn to God in a time of crisis. The last time I saw a glimmer of this was, and I still remember it very clear in my mind, was right after 9-11. And, you know, but even then it was for a few weeks and it was not sustained at all. But in 2020, I mean, you read the news, there has been no return at a national level to prayer or repentance or any kind of an appeal to God. The New York Times recently put out an article called God is Dead, So is the Office. These people want to save both. Fascinating. It's about an uptick in the last six months in particular of a kind of pseudo-spirituality in corporate America. There's a group of Harvard Divinity graduates who are Unitarian Universalists who have started to work as divinity consultants for the workplace through their new firm, the Sacred Design Lab, and there's a few others as well. Digital workers are at home, as many of you know, with little to no boundary between work and the rest of life, and secularism has little to no meaning to offer you in your pain or suffering. So these divinity consultants are designing religious-style rituals for digital workers, such as, I'm not making this up, a ritual for purchasing your domain name, or a ritual for when you get the email from LegalZoom that you've officially registered as an LLC, or a grieving ritual for when a project doesn't succeed. For all of the talk about how our generation is spiritual but not religious, this is an unexpected twist. It is religious but not spiritual. 
Tara Isabella Burton, the author of Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, calls it the unbundling of religion, which is a play on, if you can think back to a decade ago, when cable packages split apart for the arrival of streaming services. So now we get to pick and choose, like we can watch a little bit of HBO, a little ESPN, a little AMC, if we like that show, or whatever, in the same way, now we get to do that with religion and spirituality. A little Buddhism here, some mindfulness, I'm into that, a little yoga, I like to take my body seriously, a touch of kabbalah a faux Christian community small group at the office, other than the fact that you can get fired, but that's a whole other problem. And she writes, quote, the idea is that what we want, what feels good to us, what we desire, that all of this is constitutive of who we are. We risk, and here's her warning, we risk seeing spirituality as something we can consume, something for us, or even something for our brand. All that to say, the ache for God and his love, for a life of meaning and purpose and a community to belong to, that ache is deep inside all of us by the Imago Dei. Male, female, regardless of your religious background or ethnicity or where you are in the class conversation, it's in all of us. But it is becoming less and less common for people in our nation to attempt to quench that ache in God in general or in the way of Jesus in particular. But this is just the most recent iteration of a shift that's been in process for the last two to three centuries in the West, but has accelerated over the last two to three decades. And my sense is, I have no empirical data for this, this is just my intuition, that it's accelerated even more over the last few months since the start of COVID. And that is kind of at a 30,000 foot level, and we talk about this on a regular basis, the shift from a Christian to a post-Christian culture. Now, if that's new information to you, give me three minutes to kind of parse it out for you. That language is based on the work of Philip Reif, who was a sociologist of religion and one of the great minds of the last century. He divided Western history into three basic stages. First was what he called pre-Christian culture. So this is Celtic Ireland before St. Patrick, or it's the Norse tribes and the Viking raiders before the gospel. It's a culture of gods and goddesses. It is tribal, it is violent, and it is charged with spiritual energy. It's the opposite of a secular culture. But much of that spiritual energy is dark and malevolent. But then, as followers of Jesus kind of make their way west from Israel and Antioch and Asia Minor through northern Africa and the Roman Empire and end up in kind of what we now think of as Europe, the gospel or the west kind of moves into a second phase of Christian culture, or a better way to say that is Christianized culture, as the west has always been a mixed bag of Christian and pagan and then later secular ideas. So this would be Victorian England at the turn of the century or you know America after the the Second Great Awakening. I was reading a book last night about Victorian London as kind of the first great urban center of human history, and it was reading this like average day in a banking firm in central London, and the day started at 8.30 a.m. with morning prayer. And everyone, from the bank president down to the time clerk, like everyone had to be there on time for morning prayer. Can you imagine if you work at Umqua Bank or Bank of America or Wells Fargo, like, make sure you're there at 8.30. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer to begin our day together. Like, I can't even fathom a world where that was the norm. And the upside to Christianized culture is that culture in general, whether it's good or bad, 
is a mechanism for spiritual formation. We become like our culture. There's a stereotype to a Portlander. You can tell when somebody is new to the town because they're still driving a truck or whatever it is. Like there's just, you know, or they have a styrofoam cup or whatever it is. You just, we don't do that here. You know, there's a stereotype to every culture, to every city, to every nation. We become like our culture. And Christendom, as historians call it, that kind of second culture, formed people in the general direction of Jesus' vision of human flourishing with a few glaring exceptions. The downside is that in this kind of a cultural milieu, the line between the church and what the New Testament writers call the world is fuzzy at best. And so it's rife with compromise and complicity. Three, for that reason and others, the West then moves into kind of a third phase of what we call or what he called post-Christian culture, starting with the Enlightenment, but for many years, that third shift was more isolated with elites, but since the 1960s in our nation, there's been, before that in Europe, there's been a rapid spread through our nation as a whole. And the key takeaway for our purposes, and this is what you need to get, is that post-Christian culture is not a return to pre-Christian culture. So nobody that I'm aware of has gone back to worshiping Odin, or we make cool movies about him now, but that's about it. Nobody that I know is sacrificing their first son, you know, son to the spirits of Forest Park or whatever. Post-Christian culture is a reaction against Christianity and an attempt to move beyond it based on its former scaffolding. I think of it as the West rebellious kind of teenager, teenager moment. You know, it's like we're like the stereotypical adolescent kind of texting and tweeting about how lame our parents are while we're still living in their house and eating all of their food and mad at them even as they're paying for our college or whatever it is. This is kind of the Western moment, in particular around human rights. Yuval Harari, the leading atheist of our day right now, calls human rights a Christian myth. There is no coherent logical argument from Darwinian materialism to human rights. You don't get from survival of the fittest to we should all inconvenience ourselves to care for those on the margins. That is logically beyond inconsistent. You get there from the Christian doctrine of the Imago Dei. This all historians, even far left secular ones agree, this is where it comes from. So we have this like angsty kind of reactionary, hostile, rebellious kind of teenager movement against the way of Jesus. In the language of my friend Mark Sayers, post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom while defending the reign of the individual will. In Sayer's language, it's the kingdom without, or an attempt at the kingdom without the king. Post-Christian culture is still moral. Don't take this as some kind of a slant. In fact, it is painfully moral at times. There is an unprecedented advocacy for human rights and equality, especially over the last year, which we laud and we link arms with. But note how with its rise comes cancel culture and online shaming with the internet mob as judge, jury, and executioner. The West inherited from Christianity incredibly high moral standards for living, but without the power of Christ's spirit, it is increasingly devoid of the necessary resources to achieve its moral goals. The result is a culture that can rarely live up to its own standards. 
That is one of the reasons, there are many more, that there is so much anxiety and anger right now because we want to, we being our culture, wants to bring about a secular utopia without God and it's not working. And with the idols of ideology failing on both the left and the right, it's left many in culture at large and in the church as well reeling. The church has been through at least three shifts, I'm sure there are more, over the last half of a century. And again, we've done work on this before, years ago. Three shifts. Number one is from the majority to the minority. Now, just to be crystal clear and out of respect, we are not, the church at large is not an ethnic minority, and I need to make that very clear to respect, but we are what sociologists call a cognitive minority, meaning our worldview and our value system, our practices and our social norms are more and more at sharp odds with that of our host culture. We face constant pressure from what the New Testament writers call the world from both the left and the right to assimilate to the herd. While 56% of millennials and still 70-something percent of the population as a whole identify as Christian, a recent survey by Barna Group, which was the most extensive millennial survey on spirituality ever done, found that of that 56% of millennials that identify as Christian, they broke them into three kind of subgroups. One was the nomads, which are people that are basically post-church and kind of sort of Christian, but more spiritual seekers. Then the largest group was what they called habitual Christians, or actually it's about the same size, meaning they, uh, they go to church on a quasi-regular basis, they identify as a Christian, but their lifestyle is no different from anybody else on the street. A mere 8% of the 56% of millennial Christians were what they called resilient disciples. And resilient disciples were not like the next Mother Teresa. They were just like basic disciples of Jesus. Like they pray at some kind of a regular basis. They read scripture on a regular basis. They're in a community with other Jesus, other followers of Jesus. And they attempt to live into the vision and under the authority of the New Testament. Kind of basic, I'm a disciple of Jesus stuff. That's 8% of the 56%. So we're at low single digits of the, and that's in the nation as a whole. Who, I don't even want to know what it is in our city. You know what I mean? If you're at an office party and there's 100 people there, the odds are there's maybe one or two, maybe one or two other people there who are a resilient disciple of Jesus. That is a new phenomenon for the church in our country. We are on the fringe. Secondly, from a place of honor to a place of shame, there was a time not long ago when followers of Jesus were at the center point of culture. Um, visit Washington, D.C., or Boston, or Philadelphia, and just even, even our own city, walk around downtown and just look at the Latin inscriptions on the original buildings. Almost all of them are scripture. There was a time not long ago when followers of Jesus were at the center. Many, if not most, government leaders were at least cultural Christians. Few of them were resilient disciples, but most were at least at a nominal level Judeo-Christian. All of the Ivy League was Christian. Most of those started as seminaries for pastors. Most of the leading intellectuals in science and philosophy and art and literature were believers. Pastors were often people of high standing. That is hard for me to believe. And the church held a place of honor in society at large. We all know that time is gone. 
in particular with the radical reversal in moral vision around human sexuality and the life of the unborn, we now have the moral low ground in society's eyes. Jesus' sex ethic in particular is thought of as immoral by many in our society the same way that his teachings on money were thought of as immoral a generation or four ago. In the shocking twist, we are no longer the like button in your shirt, respectable citizen, middle class kind of person. We are now like the James Dean, the 60s beatnik, the 80s straight edge punk rock group on the fringe. We're now on the fringe of society. Because of that, there is a third shift that we are living through that I feel in the marrow of my bones more in the last year than I ever have. And that is from a widespread tolerance to a rising hostility. As the writer of Hebrews put it, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, right? We're nowhere close to what other followers of Jesus are dealing with all around the world. So I shy well away from the word persecution. But there is a kind of cultural and relational and emotional persecution or at least a pressure that we live under and a stigma we carry and a bit of a wound, at least in my heart, to our heart. More and more people think of us not just as weird as like, wait, you don't sleep together before you get, like how do you know if you're a good fit? How, like, just from weird to more and more people of us now think of us as dangerous. Thinking tomorrow, it'll be really interesting to watch the news this coming week. Tomorrow's the first Senate hearing for Amy Conant Barrett. And there's all, like, all of my secular friends are freaking out because she's a part of this thing called People of Praise. Do you know that People of Praise is here in our city? They are beyond rad. This is like an intentional, charismatic Catholic community. Gerald and I have spent time with them. They are beyond rad. They live together in community. They live together in houses together around a rule of life. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They are some of the most wonderful wonderful, caring, civic. They are phenomenal people. But the fact that she's a part of this kind of national subgroup of the Catholic Church is freaking people out. She is now, the perception of, is of her as a threat. But this is nothing new for followers of Jesus. It may be new for us, but it is not new for the way of Jesus. In fact, historians argue our late modern Western world is closer to the, that of the New Testament than the West has been in over a millennia. And the metaphor that the writers of Scripture use to name the felt experience of our time is exile. The writer Lee Beach defines exile in his excellent book as, quote, the experience of knowing that one is an alien and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. How true is that, of, is that of our city? The dominant values run counter to one's own. He goes on to say, this sense of exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. What a great line. The novelist Paul Tabori defines exile as being an outcast within one's own country, meaning you can be an American citizen or have a visa or a green card or call a nation home, but still feel like you are on the outside looking in. Eugene Peterson writes, the essential meaning of exile is that we are where we don't want to be. We are separated from home. 
And that is why we feel a dislocation and a disequilibrium in our body and with it a fear that comes from the loss of safety and security, the loss of a home. But while exile into what the Barna Group calls Digital Babylon, which is a great name for our culture, while it's new to many of us as Americans, it goes back to before the time of Christ. So here's the backstory before we read Jeremiah 29. After centuries, if you've read the Old Testament, of God warning Israel through the prophets, which is basically the entire second half of the Old Testament, warning Israel to repent of the triad of idolatry, immorality, and injustice. Finally, after she is just hard to God's voice and love, Israel is left to her own devices. And most of the time, that is God's judgment in the library of Scripture. It's not like, let me kill you. It's just, okay, now you're on your own. You don't want me in your life. Let me respect your freedom and your agency, and now you do life without me. And without God's pastoral protection, Babylon, the empire of the east, comes right in to conquer Jerusalem. The city is destroyed. The temple is literally torn down stone by stone. Hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children are put to death. And what's left of the people, for the most part, are dragged away into exile 700 miles to the east, where they have never been, where they live as strangers in a strange land. Land. That's the language of the Old Testament. They are a minority. They are a community living on the margins. They are far from home. All around them is a, a, a strange new language, strange culture, strange climate, strange religion, strange economic model, strange political system. But the prophet of the time, Jeremiah, who is still back in Jerusalem with a tiny group of people, he writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon, and it becomes, over the centuries, a kind of template for how the people of God are to flourish and thrive in exile. Read with me, Jeremiah chapter 29, take a look at verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It said, verse 4, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the message, verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Note the tone. This is not a tone of hostility or anger or anxiety, but love and care. Pray to the Lord for it, not against it, for it. Because, and I love the appeal to narcissism, if it prospers, you too will prosper. It's good for you as well. Yet this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. 
This is referring, if you read Jeremiah, to a group of prophets who were basically saying to the exiles, hey, don't get used to the spot. Everything, we're going back home. Any day, God's gonna rescue us. Everything will go back to normal, so just don't worry about it here. And he's saying they were, they were peddling a kind of nostalgia for the past rather than pushing people to face reality. And God says, listen, they mean to comfort you, but don't listen to them. They prophesy lies. This 10 is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, to clarify, that's a long time, right? Not anytime soon. Then I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. The you there is plural. So this isn't about you or me, this iconic line we're about to read. It's about the people of God in exile. 11, for I know the plans I have for you, for the people of God, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. There's a future for the people of God on exile. Then, and the then in context is after 70 years. So we, we, if you grew up in the church, we, we love to quote this one out of context, and we just leave out the fact that the 70 years like thing. We just, let's drop that, and let's drop it about the people of God in exile and persecution. Let's just make it about me and my future. Not right at all. Then, after 70 years in exile, and on top of that, after exile or God through exile has done a deep work of maturity in you and a change of your inner heart from one that is hard and stubborn and closed off to one that is open and pliable and hungry for God, then you will call on me and come and pray to me what they were not doing before. And then I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart, not a little bit, not as a religious impulse or tradition, but with all that you are, a desperate heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, not just Babylon. Notice this is a broader motif. And the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back home to the place from which I have carried you into exile. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from Jeremiah's letter about how to posture ourselves to flourish and thrive in a cultural exile, whether that's ancient Mesopotamia or late modern Portland. You know, as a general rule, there are two extremes that we want to avoid in our posture toward exile. The first is separatism, and I don't need to say much about this. This is where we retreat into kind of a cultural cul-de-sac. In the past, this was a kind of Christian as adjective subculture, meaning you have a Christian dentist and a Christian doctor and a Christian mechanic because you know you need a Christian mechanic and a Christian plumber and you wear Christian clothing, so on and so forth. This was far more of a problem for previous generations. Bethany and I are just like, we can remember it at least. We were cool enough to not take part, but we remember it. Most of us have the opposite problem, more on that in a minute. But there is a more kind of, I think, millennial Gen Z kind of version of this where people just kind of keep their head down and fly under the radar um, and don't really bring up the fact that they are a Christian or they just kind of drop out from the common good, in particular on issues of justice, and watch Netflix rather than engage with the world. 
But the far greater pull for most of us in a city like Portland is syncretism, where we get sucked into the gravitational pull, the kind of black hole of the city, and assimilate to the host culture in a Zadie Smith kind of reverse colonization. If you've not read White Teeth, I can't recommend that novel enough. If you read the Old Testament, you realize the long-running temptation of the people of God is not God or, but God and. It's less to atheism and more to idolatry. In our time, the great threat is less a Yuval Harari and more of a Nietzsche-style Nietzsche kind of nihilism and more of a kind of DIY faith that's like a little Jesus, a little church when I'm in the mood and I feel up for it and it's interesting to me. Our political ideology of choice, there's a right version, a left version. Either way, a generous dose of Portland sex ethics all wrapped up in radical individualism and me getting to define my own vision of the good. And I get it. I get the emotion of it. In exile, it is easy to feel fear rather than faith. Exile is scary. We feel unsafe and weak and vulnerable. And fear, if you read the New Testament, is the love killer. Fearful people are not loving people. Behind most of the outrage and anger and polarization that you see online or whatever, behind almost all of it is fear. As John put it, perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. We also feel despair rather than hope as we live under the dark cloud of uncertainty, like how much longer will it be legal for me to preach the way of Jesus? How much longer will, maybe for hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe for two months, I have no idea. We literally like plan as elders what to do when we lose our nonprofit status, what to do when the discrimination laws change or whatever, what to do when like we literally are thinking about what what would a model look like should that come to pass? I hope it won't, but we have to think about it. And it's easy to feel despair. And it's easy to feel self-pity rather than love. Robert Davidson calls self-pity the harlot emotion. Woo! I read that recently and thought, I've been having a six-month affair with self-pity, and I should stop and repent. That Seriously, I have like, felt more sorry for myself over the last year than I ever have. I complain and I grumble about everything from masks to the vision of Jesus around whatever moral issue. And it's easy for me just to feel self-pity and to play the victim rather than reach out in love toward those around me. And the emotions of exile, fear and despair and self-pity often move us away from faith, hope, and love, the nucleus of life in the kingdom of God and toward either a separatism or a syncretism to escape the emotions of exile. But take a look at Jeremiah's third way. There are seven commands in the letter, and note they are commands, not suggestions. Number one, and they're great, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Meaning, this may not be where you want to be, but it is where you are. Make it home. Architect the best environment for living that you possibly can. Settle in for a long run. This will take a while, most likely. Get to know the culture. Cook a little curry or whatever it was they used to eat in Babylon. I don't know. Eat its food. Enjoy its wine. Plan for the long haul. Find joy in the place you find yourself in. Two, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Very different culture. And give your daughters in marriage 
make a great profile on eHarmony.com so that they, just kidding, that they too may, or maybe, that they too may have sons and daughters, meaning live in a thick web of relational life and multi-generational family, forge thick ties to each other across generations, become a kind of alternative society. That's my Anabaptist theology in me. Like we are an alternative society of heaven on earth, what Paul in Philippians calls a colony of heaven. You should never, ever feel alone. Three, increase in number there, do not decrease. Meaning let the generative life of the Trinitarian God inside of you, let it out. Dream and reach out and make a contribution. For us, that means the most basic meaning is to have children. So all of you young couples who have yet to obey the way of Jesus, get at it. But it also means, that's kind of tongue in cheek. There was no laughter in the room, just none. (laughs) at all. Whoops, I think that might get me an email. But it also means invite your friends and families to Alpha. Practice hospitality. As Peter put it, live such good lives among the pagans, not a derogatory term, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they glorify God on the day of his visitation. Number four, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Take your work seriously. When you show up tomorrow morning for your job, give everything that you have to it as an act of worship and love. Do all you can to make our city more like the Garden of Eden, more in line with God's vision of human flourishing. Be a good citizen, pay your taxes, support the local economy, share with the poor, stand up for justice, volunteer, vote, pick up trash on the sidewalk. Somebody's got to do it. Number five, pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Above all, pray for your city. Notice here, there's no hostility, no rant on Twitter against your city, no form of subculture and like put up an armed guard. Pray for it. Unleash the love, the impetus of blessing at the heart of the Trinitarian God onto your city through prayer. Pray for your city to prosper under God. Number six, do not let the the one do not. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Interesting. The one negative command in the whole bunch is watch out for false teachers. And there are more now than there have ever been. For those who would lead you astray with one podcast at a time with lies by saying in the language of Paul in the New Testament what your itching ears want to hear. If you're new to Jesus, if you have not read 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Peter, these are, these are epistles you should sit in. If you've not read Jude, if you've not read Hebrews, if you've not read the New Testament, read it, then read it again, then read it 10 more times. And let the dominant warning against lies and false teachers and deception, let it come into your heart and invite you to trust Jesus in his way deeper. False teachers lead us astray by appealing to our flesh, by our base desires, and not to our deepest desires, which are to live with God in the kingdom forever. And finally, last command is to seek God. God is in your city, Jeremiah is saying. 
Nobody thought of God, Yahweh, as being over in Mesopotamia in a pagan land. He was back in the temple, which was destroyed. That's the whole point of Ezekiel 1. If you read that, it's another exile prophet. The whole first chapter is an appearance of God in Babylon, and everybody's freaking out because God's not supposed to be here. God's supposed to be back in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple. That's been destroyed. But here is God right in the middle of exile. God is here in our city, in Portland, in 2020, alive and at work for good against all of the evil here. Move toward him. That's what it means to seek God. Move toward him with all of your heart, with all of your internal energy. Pray fast, humble yourself, repent, get up early, seek God, worship God. Above all, wait on and hope in God for the future of the people of God. Note, this is a third way between separatism and syncretism. It is a kind of counterculture, but not really. We've done work before on how in Genesis, the human call is to take chaos and make order. And I know the word order has been politicized in like the last three weeks, language is changing so fast. I don't mean it in that sense, but in the kind of more archetypal union sense, take chaos and make order. And you see Jeremiah allude to that Genesis motif here, but Philip Reef again writes about how Western secular culture and this is his interpretation, is an attempt to take order and make chaos. It's less of a culture and more of what he calls an anti-culture, meaning it's less for something and it's more against all sorts of things. Playing off Reef's idea, because it can't be for something because that's a form of external authority. And in the Western view of hyper-individualism, you can't receive a vision of the good that comes from outside of yourself or it's repression or oppression. So it doesn't work. So it's an anti-culture against anything that would attempt to move you in a certain direction. Playing off Reef's idea of the late modern West as an anti-culture, Patrick Deneen, who's one of my favorite thinkers right now, a constitutional law professor from Notre Dame, says the need of the hour is not for a counterculture, as it was in the past, to tear down oppressive structures. The need of the hour is for a counter-anti-culture. Counter I love, so that's what we are, people. We're a counter-anti-culture. That's a bit of a tongue twister, but that's what we are, a counter-anti-culture. One that doesn't coddle to the left or to the right. I have to say a few words because we're coming into an election. Tim, why don't, who knows? Here we go. Tim Keller recently made, when in doubt about politics, quote Tim Keller, right? <laughs> He recently made a great point. He said the early church, at least until the fourth century, and if you know your church history, that was a turning point with the conversion of Constantine and a few decades later when Augustine, who had some great things to say, was one of the first theologians to develop just war theory, which enabled Christians to participate in political power and caused all sorts of problems. He said that the church, at least until then, at least until the fourth century, um, was marked by five things, this is very true, that set them apart from society. Number one, the church was multiracial and multi-ethnic with a very high value for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Two, and if you don't believe me, read Romans, read Galatians, read everything, read up on justification. Two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines as well. well. The only place pretty much in the ancient Mediterranean world where there was not only Jew and Gentile and Italian and barbarian and Scythian and Syrian, there was male and female and master and slave in the same gathering. It was literally unheard of. And there was a very high value in that community, that counter-anti-culture, 
of caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to give to those with less. Paul flat out said in 2 Corinthians, so that there may be equality. Three, it was staunch in its active resistance of infanticide and abortion, one of the main things that Christians were known for. Four, it was crystal clear in its vision of marriage and sexuality as the one relational container that was strong enough to hold the raw power and beauty and mystery of human sexuality was marriage defined as a covenant until death do us part between one man and one woman. And that was just as radical, if not more so, in the first century as it is in the 21st century. And five, it was nonviolent, both on a personal level and on a political level. Again, until the fourth century, it was basically not okay for a disciple of Jesus to enlist in the military. Now, if you plot those five things onto the map of modern American politics, the first two sound kind of like liberal positions, right, as they're dealing with race and class, the second two around abortion and human sexuality sound kind of like conservative positions, and the last one doesn't line up with either at all. Nobody is into that except for a few really staunch Anabaptist Christians. There is no political party or intellectual ideology that holds all five together that I'm aware of outside of the church of Jesus, and frankly, we don't often do a very good job of it at all. All five positions are biblical. There is no question. Everything I just said, it might offend you. That is just basic orthodox way of Jesus. Read the New Testament. There's nothing in there. Followers of Jesus disagree on the best way to implement each of the five. And we need to be clear, like, to separate out the biblical principle from the best means to that end. For example, Democratic Christians and Republican Christians disagree on how to best care for the poor. Is it through government programs or wealth distribution through taxes, or is it through government deregulation, the Republican position, or the Anabaptist position, is it through the church or some kind of a moderate, a little bit of a combination of all three? We debate and we discuss over how to best do it, but all disciples of Jesus agree it is our role and our responsibility to care for the poor. If you take issue with that, you're not a follower of Jesus, or you have yet to read his teachings. And the pressure in an election year especially is if you lean left to prioritize the first two and ignore the other ones. And if you lean right to prioritize the third and the fourth and ignore the first two. And in doing so, we let the name of Jesus become chaplain to what the New Testament calls the world rather than to lead us and guide us into a counter anti-culture. This third way that defies both the left and the right, and you see this in Jesus, and you can't plot the left and the right onto first century culture, but there's a bit of an analogy between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you notice that Jesus, like, nobody likes Jesus, right? <laughs> like, and like just, they're both mad at him. They hate each other, but they hate him even more, right? So that could be your experience. It could just be because you're obnoxious and need to get off Twitter and be nicer. <laughs> But it could be because you're actually following Jesus. And so you don't fit. At a political level, you are homeless. And you don't fit with the right or with the left. The third way that defies both sides is what the historian Arnold Toynbee called a creative minority. 
I love this concept. Not just a cognitive minority, but a creative minority. Toynbee, again, historian, made the case that if you study human history, you can chart most civilizations on a bell curve of kind of rise, they hit a peak, and then they fall into decline. And most argue that at least America is now over the peak and in decline. That's over my pay grade, whether that's true or not. But if you study history, once in a while, that bell curve, that decline, is averted by the emergence of what he called a creative minority, a small group of people on the margins of society, not at the center, who have a different perspective because they are from the outside looking in, but who care about the culture and who play a catalytical role in its healing and its renewal. The Jews are the example par excellence of a creative minority. After two and a half millennia of displacement, racism, the Holocaust, they are not only one still a people, but two, their fingerprints are all over the Western world. Go read the historian Thomas Cahill's The Gift of the Jews if you don't believe me. Here in America, the Jews make up 1.4% of the population, but their influence is staggering from Wall Street to the fashion industry to the legal system to Hollywood. Hollywood. So even though they are a minority, they are a creative minority. My friend John Tyson defines a creative minority in the way of Jesus this way, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. John and our, our friends at City Church or Church of the City in New York, I think their tagline is resilient disciples for the renewal of secular culture. I love that. But this is not an easy task. Have a look at this from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs from the UK. To become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This, as Jews can testify, is a demanding and risk-laden choice. And what Toynbee calls a creative minority, the writers of the Bible call the remnant. The remnant is the label used all through the library of scripture, Old and New Testament, for the small kind of group within a group. The Israel, in a sense, at the beginning with Abraham is a remnant inside human civilization, but then Israel itself is corrupt and complicit, and so there becomes a remnant inside the remnant, so to speak, that is faithful to the creator God. Paul is still writing about this to the Romans. At the present time, quote, there is a remnant chosen by grace. It's God's word in that famous story in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah is full of self-pity and full of fear and full of despair because of how pagan and corrupt the north of Israel is. And what does God say to him? Quote, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And 7,000 there is a symbolic number, not an exact head count. It's meaning there's a lot of us, there's the right number of us, and there's more of us than you think. Elijah, you think you're alone. You think you're the last one. You have this self-pity kind of righteous kind of victim thing. You're not. There are so many more of you than you think. There are so many more of us than we think on the streets of this city that we love and we call home. We are not alone even if we feel alone. And of course, to end, Jesus is the ultimate example of the remnant. 
He was, his was a minority report to the host culture, both a challenge to the status quo of compromise and complicity and a catalyst for healing and renewal from the margins to the wider society. And through his life and his teaching and his suffering and his facing of persecution and his death and his resurrection from the dead, he literally changed the course of human history, not only for Israel, but for the world. And here we are today, living in the blessing from one singular miraculous life. The question before us today is, will we join Jesus in the remnant? Or will we compromise our convictions and just assimilate to the host culture on either side. Before you can put into practice a rule of life, which was last week's teaching, or persevere together in community the week before that, first you have to decide, do I even want to be a part of the remnant? Do I want to be a part of this counter-anti-culture, this renewal movement, this healing movement of Jesus in the wider world? Do I want to join the remnant? To end, you know, at 30,000 feet, today is a call just to stay faithful in exile, to courageous, to a courageous fidelity to orthodoxy, and a kind of moral courage in a city like Portland and in a time of rising hostility. But it is not just, hear me, it is not just a call to grind it out and to like grow bitter and angry, but to stay faithful to Jesus but a call to find a way to flourish and thrive right where we are, even if it's not where we want to be. Again, read Jeremiah 29. There's no hostility, there's no fear, there's no anger, there's no aggression in his tone. It is one of love and of peace and of welcome. Eugene Peterson in Run With the Horses, which is on the life of Jeremiah and the people of God on exile. Many consider it his best book. I've read it twice already just this year. It is so good. He writes, the only place you have to be human is where you are right now. The only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day. This house you live in, this family you find yourself in, this job you have been given, the weather conditions that prevail at this moment. We must learn to find the goodness of God in our actual life, not tomorrow, but today, not when X, Y, and Z happens, but right here and now, not in a fantasy, but in reality. I think of that line from AA's Serenity Prayer, written by a Christian theologian. I pray it on a regular basis. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, and then this, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. In the year to come, will we get sucked into the gravitational pull of the city, to the outrage and anger and fear of an election cycle? Or will we live as a counter-anti-culture, a creative minority, the remnant, the people of God, and will we focus on all that is sad or bad, and there's plenty of it right now, and let all of that fear and despair and self-pity clog up our heart, or will we focus our energies 
on all that is good and beautiful and true about our life before God in this time and this place as this community with all of our problems and issues. Exile does not have to be a slog. Is it painful? Yes, at times. But it can also be 